I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Laura Prado and Carly Gerholt, the hosts of Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health, and the arts. Laura Prado was born in Romania and lived in Japan and Canada before moving to the United States at the age of 13. She is a fourth-year PsyD student in clinical psychology and a former high school English teacher with a bachelor's in creative writing and psychology and a master's in teaching. Laura's interests include grief and bereavement, death anxiety and existential concerns, immigrant identity formation, eco-anxiety and climate distress, and geropsychology. Her research interests include spiritual trauma among marginalized communities and the psychological impacts of climate change, especially on vulnerable populations. Carly Gerhold is interested in psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Her interests include feminist theories and sexuality, Lacanian psychoanalysis, critical theory, decolonialism, and treating conditions that providers deem treatment resistant, such as major depression and personality disorders. She's particularly interested in bringing psychoanalysis to spaces that do not typically utilize psychoanalytic thinking and hopes to make psychoanalysis more accessible to minoritized and historically excluded communities once licensed. Before entering the field of psychology, Carly was a biologist pursuing a doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology and studied climate change and plant-fungal interactions in wetlands and prairies. For more, please visit their website and check out their podcast, Unconventional Dyad. Unconventional Dyad. As with most Rendering Unconscious episodes, this episode is also available to view at YouTube. Just look for Rendering Unconscious Podcast at YouTube. We're hosted at Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious... Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website 
drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Well, I just want to start by saying thank you for having us and thank you for your podcast. Like Carly was saying before we hit record, we have been really influenced by it. I was actually listening to one of your episodes in preparation for today, and I feel really honored to be here. I'm sure Carly feels the same. So thank you. I'm so glad I've been listening to your podcast lately, too, on my daily walks, and it's really great. It's really wonderful what you all are doing. That's why I wanted to have you on. How did the podcast come about? Carly, you want to start this one off? Yeah, Laura and I both individually had an interest in starting a podcast. And interestingly enough, we didn't really talk about it early on. I think me, maybe about four years ago, I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool to start a podcast. And a few years ago, Laura and I started talking about our interest in podcasts. I think both of us are pretty avid podcast listeners. And we started talking about it and we're like, this would be really cool to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic had a lot to do with really launching the podcast. I think both of us felt pretty isolated and we really wanted to cultivate a sense of community, reach out to people who have similar interests or even different interests that we can learn from. And I think that was probably the start of start of our, our podcast. Yeah, I actually started a podcast for our graduate school. Uh, We're both graduate students in clinical psychology, and I wanted to use that as a marketing tool for our school. I'm the marketing liaison there. It didn't take off at all, but Carly was my first quote-unquote guest on that podcast, and we were having such a great time going back and forth, and I think we decided pretty much that day, we were like, you know what, we should just start our own at this point. Um, So yeah, that's kind of how it started. I love that. And it must be really helpful because I can, I would have loved to have had your podcast when I was in graduate school. Because <laughs> I felt completely like there was no guidance at all. You're just like going from one thing to the next and just kind of figuring it out as you went yes. along. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I think both of us really wished we had something like this. And many of the guests that we have on and many of the guests that we hope to have on in the future will certainly help kind of move the envelope a little bit or push the envelope a little bit and and what we're allowed to talk about in the classroom, what we're allowed mm-hmm. to think. Uh, it's okay to think something different in the classroom and it's okay to actually talk about it. So I think certainly that had a lot to do with it too, just our dissatisfaction with what we're learning in class. So we're both clinical psychologists and you know our, our curriculum is very much guided by the APA. And so it's, for us really going outside of that and really integrating some of these other ideas into our thought, into the classroom. So, yeah. Is this a CID program? Mm -hmm. Yes, Yes, it is. That's what I have too. Oh, very cool. It's always so exciting. Yeah. It's always exciting to meet somebody else who's a CID. I think for me personally, um, It's interesting because growing up, my dad is a pretty big scientist. He's really into the sciences. He's very educated. He has a PhD in in, um, physics. And so he always pushed the PhD. He always pushed for research. Um, And when I started 
dipping my toe into like potentially going into a PsyD, my initial reaction was maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, like my dad's voice in the back of my head, like that's not a real, you know, he doesn't say that now and he would never say that now. But definitely when I was an undergrad, he always pushed like if you want to go to become a psychologist, you should get a PhD. Um, but for me personally, the PsyD makes the most sense. I'm not really a researcher. I do some research on the side if I feel like it, but I don't see myself writing grants or being in an academic setting at all times. I really like the clinical aspect of the PsyD, and I really like that our school pushes us to get as many experiences as possible. That was really important to me. So I think for me personally, the PsyD is pretty perfect. I would have to agree with that, Laura. I came from the hard sciences. I came from biology. So I have a master's degree in biology and I was uh, pursuing a PhD in biology. And about three years into that program, I really realized I wasn't getting much satisfaction from the work that I was doing. And so the PsyD experience was pretty appealing to me. So I, I, though I really like research and I respect research, I think for me on a, on a personal level and a professional level too, getting the clinical experience and really touching patients is, is more important for me than being in an academic institution. Yeah, I really like the clinical work as well. I was originally going to go to med school and um, was doing my undergrad with like all of the classes I needed for pre-med. Um, yeah. And then I realized when I was looking at schools that like basically psychiatrists just take like the same psychology class that every doctor takes and they do their residency inpatient and that's like the training they get. <laughs> yes. Uh, like where's the void? Where's the psychoanalysis? What happened to that? And that's like way, way long gone. So yeah, so that's when I kind of had to rethink my whole plan and then I decided to get this ID as well because... Yeah, I, wa I wanted the clinical aspect. I wanted the theory. But then, of course, in the PsyD program, I didn't get any of that either, which is why yeah. I had to go to psychoanalytic <laughs> training after that. <laughs> yeah, I think for me too, Vanessa, I'm, I'm also thinking about psychoanalytic training. And something that is a little bit disappointing for me is not really being exposed to it in our clinical programs. So we are very much exposed to a lot of different ideas and, um, you know, theoretical orientations, but I do feel a void there. And a lot of the educating that I'm getting is more reading and, and finding texts that are, are interesting, but also highlight different psychoanalytic theories and different psychoanalytic ideas. So for me too, there, there is certainly a void even within the PsyD program because I'm really interested in psychoanalysis, but we don't necessarily get that in our in our program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was lucky in, uh, in my graduate school, even though the school was mainly like uh, CBT, um, there were two analysts that basically had retired in Florida. <laughs> I'm from Miami originally. Um, and so they like did adjuncting basically at the school like taught a few extra classes and you could have them as your supervisor and they did supervise for like um, a psychodynamic psychotherapy kind of practicum so I took that as my first practicum and then I was able to keep I ran a group a women's group there and then I was able to keep one or two uh, patients for like three years, like twice a week. So I was able to do that oh, wow. in school, which was really great. But then of course, when I had to defend um, the clinical competency exam and I, <laughs> I had the, I had used one of those patients as the, that case. And then the people that were like 
supervising that were not psychodynamic at all. And they were like, well, basically, we could fail you because the only reason that you should treat someone with major depressive disorder for more than six to eight sessions or something is if they have a personality disorder. So they basically made me diagnose her with a personality disorder in order to pass the clinical competency exam. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That that's yeah. coming up for both of us. We we both have to uh, do our comps before we go on internship, and so that's yeah. coming up for both of us too. Yeah, it's a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vanessa, I'm curious about what what got you interested in psychoanalysis in the first place. I'm I don't plan on doing any sort of psychoanalytic training as of right now. Who knows? I might change my mind at some point. Um, I've always been interested in Carl Jung. And so I've dipped my toes in that a little bit. But I always find it fascinating when people pivot, especially from like a more medical model to psychoanalysis. And I know that the two are intertwined. But yeah, I'm curious about what got you into the field of psychoanalysis. I was just always interested in Freud. I don't know where I found Freud and Jung, but it was probably just at like Barnes and Noble or something because I used to like sit in bookstores and sit on the floor and read. So I'm assuming I just like picked them up somewhere like that. Um, But I was always interested in that. And that's why I was so disappointed because like in undergrad, it's really behavioral and you learn about Skinner and Pavlov and all of this. But I just thought that was kind of like basic like basic cognitive skills and basic coping skills and different like ways of thinking that were pretty basic. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. thought that it would be much more kind of fleshed out in the in the society program. And it was, I mean, I had like an existential supervisor and I took classes with him. And so I did get like a lot of different kinds of theory, um, but we really only, we didn't read any young at all. There was none. Mm-hmm. And then Freud, we read one paper, Morning in Melancholia, and then uh, one of the supervisors I had, there were two. One was like drive theory Freudian, like like really biological Freudian. And mm-hmm. then the other one was um, more object relations. Um, so I did end up doing like my, the equivalent of a dissertation, you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective. But it was more, I used that book. There's a book, Fred Pine, that was like drive ego object self. So I basically looked at looked at cases through like all all four kind of psychoanalytic paradigms from that book. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just really disappointed overall that I, it w- wasn't more in depth, the therapy. And I really loved working in the clinics. Like I worked in a lot of hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, like I worked at a, in a dialysis unit where we would like be talking to people while they were getting dialysis. And then I did the oh. consultation liaison where you like go around the hospital for people that, that are in the inpatient, like medical side of the hospital um, and just kind of talk to them while they're, while they're in there. And I really like that. And my internship actually ended up being, um, I did like neuropsych. So even in, in wow. society, I was still like much more like science and I did neuropsych testing and I worked in a brain injury clinic. Um, so it's very different um, than what I'm doing now, but I really loved working in the brain injury clinic. Um, it was like an outpatient brain injury clinic called The Bridge. So it was like a bridge from being like an inpatient to like going back into the world. Um, and we did a lot of like cognitive exercises to kind of help people, you know, re- start thinking again, basically. Um, yeah, so I really love that work. And I almost ended up staying there for a job and never like leaving Miami. But um, I did. I ended up getting my postdoc at a university in Northern California. So then I worked in like a uh, counseling center. <laughs> so I've been in lots of different places. 
Um, but yeah, I still really wanted the like really in depth because even like mm-hmm. at the counseling center, you get like 10 sessions and that's right. it, you know, and I just really felt my first job after my postdoc was at a hospital in New York City. That's how I ended up in New York, working in an HIV clinic there, um, which was also outpatient, like running groups and doing individual therapy. Um, and that's really when things changed for me because that's when I just really got so disturbed by the system and like how people are treated and how racist it is and how basically like abusive and violent um, the medical and mental health care system is in the States. And working there just kind of, you know, once I stopped working there, I just have been like writing books and giving talks about the kind of systemic abuses in the mental health care system. Um, and then and then doing the psychoanalytic training. And as far as training, I don't even think you need to go like to training training if you don't want. I'm very much mm-hmm. an advocate. Like you, you, you talked to Lara Shihai and um, I really love what her and like Lynn Layton are doing and kind of figuring out how to transmit psychoanalytic practice outside of the institutes basically mm-hmm. because the institutional structures are so rigid and they've really all but killed the whole field. Um, so I'm really a fan of like having people like, you know, do your own psychoanalysis, like undergo psychoanalysis and, mm-hmm. and find a supervisor that helps supervise you in analytic methods and study psychoanalysis. And basically all the institutes do is like put those three components together and give you like a formal program, but their certificate at the end, it doesn't like, it doesn't mean anything. Like you don't right. like, like it, it doesn't do anything. It's just like a little stamp that they give you. But if you're already a psychologist, then it's just basically you have a specialty in psychoanalysis and it's up, up to you ethically when you feel that you're like ready to work in that way. But it doesn't really, there are certificates that don't really do anything. They're kind of meaningless. That's, that's <laughs> really fascinating. Yeah, because I do get personally this sense that, and I, I know I'm wrong about this, or maybe I'm right in some ways, but I do get the sense that psychoanalysis is this like exclusive club that I have to figure out how to join. And I think what you were saying about taking psychoanalysis out of institutions like that's really fascinating yeah that's where i'm leaning towards and i actually think i was just i've just been thinking about this since the the last uh, section nine talk which was like what last weekend um i've been thinking about that and how psychoanalysis is actually really poised to kind of be the mental health care that does work outside of all these abusive systems because the mm-hmm. medical system has like rejected psychoanalysis it's not covered by insurance i i mean my what i've been in three analyses and my training analysis at the institute was actually covered by insurance because my analyst was a medical doctor so wow. and that's the same thing here in sweden like if you see someone who's an md like a psychiatrist who's also trained as an analyst and they basically prescribe psychoanalysis then it will be covered but those people are so rare you know <laughs> they're so few and far between because why would they spend their time listening to someone five times a week when they can see five people an hour prescribing medications, you know? So nobody, right. most people don't do that. Um, but I think because it's been rejected by the medical system, we're actually like in the, such a great place to practice kind of outside the systems because we all have to take kind of private pay anyway because we can't use insurance anyway. What's really coming to mind is the practicum experiences that Laura and I have had. We've both been in medical settings, community Mm -hmm. mental health, and I would say the ability of us, for us to practice psychoanalysis, even psychodynamic psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. it's there. You you can do it with patients, especially at a level of, of our training. They don't really have to pay for their services. So 
here we are providing the service in a medical clinic. It's the coolest thing. And it is, it makes it more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I think Laura and I have been thinking about in the future to create a clinic, to open a clinic, a training clinic. So we can, yeah, we're, we're both kind of excited about this, but really allowing practicum students to come in, learn psychodynamic psychotherapy and provide services to people who can't afford it, whether they don't have insurance or whether they can't afford, you know, 50 or $100 a session. So mm-hmm. I think both of us are really interested in making it accessible, yeah. whatever that might look like, whether it's through the podcast or whether it's actually on the ground providing services to people. Yeah, I think patients are hungry for that, honestly. When I've tried to do more CBT-oriented, and granted, CBT is not my thing, so perhaps I'm just really awful at it, but when I've tried to do more like solution-focused or CBT kind of techniques with people, a lot of the patients I've had have kind of rejected it. And when we start talking about things like childhood trauma or spiritual experiences or interpersonal patterns, like something seems to click with people differently. Um, so I definitely think there's space for that. And yeah, I'm excited, Carly. I, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that we can make this happen. Yeah, that would be wonderful. That was one of the goals when we started Das Unbehagen, like, I guess it's almost 10 years ago now. That was one of our goals was to kind of try to make a clinic where we could provide, you know, low fee or free psychoanalysis to more people. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of bureaucracy involved, mm-hmm. unfortunately, when you make a clinic um, individually, it's a little bit easier. Um, but that would be great, you know. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a need for it. And I think even like like working in hospital settings, just actually listening to people because there's yeah. so many things like forms people have to fill out. And like, I feel like half the time it's spent like, okay, we have to fill this out, especially like at the HIV clinic because there's so many different grants involved in funding the clinic that like half of everyone's therapy time is fill- filling out these forms mm-hmm. so we can keep our grants, you know, it's absurd. Um, but when you actually like are just listening to people and like really listening and like remembering their stories like <laughs> over time, people are just so glad because they're so used to being in these systems that just like don't treat them like humans you know they're just like pushing them through and pushing them through i was thinking vanessa we we laura and i are both in in training now and both of us I I, I don't want to speak for Laura here. I I guess I'll speak for myself. I know for the podcast, especially, I have had people to sit, you know, tell me, you know, be careful, be careful with what topics Mm -hmm. you cover, be careful who who you bring on the podcast. And I'm wondering, you know, as someone like yourself, who you have just so many people on the podcast covering all sorts of different topics, what what not necessarily advice, but what what can you share with us that would help us maybe alleviate some of that anxiety about talking mm-hmm. about these topics like we're I'm really interested in like decolonizing psychoanalysis and decolonizing psychology and those are topics that are a little bit off you know you, you aren't supposed to talk about that in the classroom so I'm curious what you, what you have to say about that um I say go for it and don't censor yourselves because you know I've had especially when I started the podcast I was in the middle of moving from the states to Sweden and then like somebody in a Swedish newspaper like wrote about the podcast in the newspaper and then I was like whoa people are (laughs) listening to this like here like these are like I'm new here like I need colleagues what are they going to think of me I've never Mm -hmm. even met them you know things like that so I, I definitely had panic moments but I think all of that is like old thinking that's like the kind of thinking that's currently hopefully being dismantled and dying out 
Mm -hmm. because I think the way to move forward is for people to be more open and to have more dialogues and to talk about things that are uncomfortable and that people might not necessarily want to talk about or that are taboo or acceptable because I feel like all that old thinking needs to just go out the window like I'm just it's just so I'm so over it I feel like everybody's so over it and like having to Mm -hmm. posture and pretend you're a certain way yeah you know it's just like forget it forget it Absolutely. That's such a relief to hear, honestly, because I think in our training, we've been taught, you know, your personal life is your personal life and your professional life is something different. And you need to make sure you present yourself in a certain way. And granted, we're in a professional program. So I think that's maybe drilled into us a little bit more than maybe at other programs. But I have felt this struggle of like, how much of myself do I bring into the psychotherapy room and how much of that do I leave outside and it's becoming harder and harder to not bring myself into the psychotherapy room especially when I I work with older adults a lot I really enjoy working with older adults and at least with the people I've worked with I've noticed that they want to know who I am and where I'm from and they actually ask me very direct questions and so a lot of times I can't even escape that you know I have to be honest with them about who I am and where where I've done my training. Um, And yeah, I just think for a very long time in our training, Carly and I were taught, keep quiet, don't even speak up about your political beliefs. Or we're very, we both really care about social justice. And we were told, don't, you know, don't bring that to the surface. Don't make that public. Um, So it's just really refreshing to hear you basically give us the opposite (laughs) information. Yeah, no, I mean, in psychoanalytic training, uh, in the formal training that I was in, um, they they told us not to talk about politics at all, like even with other analysts, like it was like, no, no, psychoanalysis is a different thing than that. It doesn't go there. Um, It was like completely taboo and not talked about. And they like, overtly said, you don't talk about that. That is not your place, right? Um, and I think that needs to go. And that's why I love like what Lara's doing and uh, mm-hmm. David Gastambide and just all these people, Carlos Padron that you had on recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to talk about. And Julie Futrell, who I had on a couple of episodes ago on Rendering Unconscious, um, she talked about that she's been thinking since the pandemic a lot lately about this like blank screen. And she asked me like, like, what are you doing? Because, you know, if someone asked me, like, how are things there in Sweden? I can't just be like, well, how do you imagine they are? You know, <laughs> like, what, what are your fantasies about how I'm doing? Like, we're dealing with real problems here. Right. And you can't, we just can't be that way. You know, I just have to say, well, I stay inside because nobody's wearing masks. You know, like, that's just reality. And I feel like, especially with the pandemic, like, and Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been happening with Trump and politics, like, we need to be real and realistic and direct about these things because like julie pointed out like that old way of thinking is um it's very this kind of patriarchal white supremacist way like where everybody's supposed to fit in this certain mold Mm -hmm. or like the institute i went to was very ego psychology where my analysts like literally believed that like the the patient is supposed to like take on the ego identify with the ego of the analyst and like that's really messed up, actually, mm-hmm. you know? It's like trying to make everyone the same and whitewash everyone yeah. is just a really bad way to go. Wow. I'm imagining how that would even work with a lot of the patients. So we, we both live in Milwaukee, and 
primarily we work with, uh, you know, people who can't afford services. Um, and most of our patients are people of color. And I'm imagining even doing that with mm-hmm. them. And it, I, it, it, I get this really gross feeling in my body when I'm even imagining that. I think inherently we do have to really be conscious of what exactly we're, we're doing with our patients. And I, I think for me, I really have to evaluate what exactly I'm doing. Am I wanting them to take on part, part of me? I, I really have to try to separate myself from that. That being said, though, I can't even imagine thinking that with these patients. It, no. It's just, it, it's so gross and disgusting to me. And there's no space for them as an individual. You're not creating space mm-hmm. for them to just exist as who they are. And a lot of them already feel that from whatever other life experiences mm-hmm. they've had where they've been stifled. So to continue doing that, it is kind of, to use your words, Vanessa, it is abusive and violent. Yeah, exactly. And it's perpetuating the, the kind of systemic abuses, you know, it's, it's right. becoming like, uh an advocate of that and not that you're meaning to do that intentionally but that's basically what's happening the whole ego psychology idea of like it's just basically like everyone needs to like make their ego stronger so they can go back to work basically and like have mm-hmm. kids and be a nuclear family you know and it's really just like being agents of the state at the end of the day instead yeah. of dis- disrupting the narratives that need to be disrupted so I say keep doing what you're doing. And when I was in training too, they told me I couldn't even have like a professional website. <laughs> wow. This is only, I finished in 2013. This isn't like that long ago, you know? And they were like, they're like, uh, yeah, we couldn't have a, a website at all. They didn't want us to be on Facebook or any social media. We couldn't have a website because we couldn't have any of our personality because patients might see. Mm-hmm. And even now, like, you know, I do a lot of art and music and I did that. I did music before. And like, actually, when I was in tr- psychoanalytic training, my my ex that I was like on, in, on a lot of his albums and stuff, I made him go like take my name off of like all of his albums on discogs.com and things like that because I was like, like, I can't let anyone know I make this weird music, you know, that's like not professional. And then finally, at some point, I don't know, five years ago, I was just like, I just can't live like this anymore. It's yeah. just like, it's just making like, like, I know that I'm taught to do all these things for my patients, but like, I'm a person too, and I need yeah. to exist. And I can't just like negate all these aspects of myself for, for other people. Like for me, that's not a healthy thing to do. And that actually builds upon like my childhood issues of like having to be be like a person that's always like nice and reflective what you want you know I think a lot of us kind of maybe had parents that made us that way because uh, that's why we're in this field you know we're kind of good at it (laughs) so Mm -hmm. for me I had to kind of break that and start like becoming myself more and being out there more it's so funny you mentioned that I Laura and I were talking maybe about a year ago about music and art and I had no, despite Laura and and I being really good friends for about four years, I had no idea she made her own music. I had no idea that she wrote short stories. We don't talk about Mm -hmm. our interests. And I was just, I was so amazed. I'm like, you make some amazing music. And I had no idea that this even existed. Yeah. Yeah, and Carly does poetry, and yeah, it's very artistic. I actually, you can't see my background right now because I switched it on on Skype, but I actually have one of her paintings that she did, um, you know, hanging up on my wall. So yeah, I, I don't think we, I don't think we touched on any of our artistic endeavors um, or personal interests until maybe like three years into our friendship, which is crazy. Um, 
and it's that's not how I approach most of my other relationships or friendships outside of psychology. You know, so why is it that with mental health colleagues, we feel like we have to hide these different parts of ourselves. But with my friend who I've been friends with since college, like I opened up about that right away. It's just very interesting and kind of disturbing at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, you know, what I've noticed since I have been more myself fully, you know, I don't go in my sessions and be like, hey, guys, this is what I do. <laughs> you know, of course not. But just like, I think just like being yourself more authentically, it just kind of helps other people be themselves more authentically, whether you're saying anything overtly or not. It's just kind of like people know, people can tell, like they can tell when you're bullshitting them and avoiding right. asking, talking about something and stuff like that. And if people do, find something about me on the internet and they talk about it you know I do ask them like well what what did, how did that make you feel what did you expect to find what were you looking for why were you looking you know like mm -hmm. it's like the primal scene like why were you peeking through the door if you might see something that you don't want to see you know so it's just bring it into the analysis you know just let them talk about it absolutely I'm curious about your your music and your art. I, I'm wondering how when did that start, and wh when did you start noticing yourself wanting to hide hide that part of yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I think well, I think like the the magical thinking and those kinds of interests. Um, those I grew up in Miami, so there's a lot of Santeria and that sort of thing around. So it's just kind of always been there. But I when I was in graduate school, I started kind of. Uh, distancing myself or pathologizing that being like oh all of that's problematic because that's what we're taught in school and it took me a while to kind of bring that back around into my life and be like no the training is problematic not me <laughs> not what all these other people think um, so that took a while and as far as the music I don't I always did it I just never talked about it um, I, I always was kind of like friends with artists and musicians and I'd be like in their side projects, but it wasn't something I did myself. It was more like me joining in on things other people were doing. Um, and my mother's an artist, so I was always like not identified with being an artist because I didn't want to be anything like her. <laughs> um, so, so that's really only been, mm, I guess started like since like 2014, something like that. I don't know. I think I just got tired of it. I, think it was, I left I left the hospital system at the end of 2012. And then I left psychoanalytic training like in the spring of 2013, uh, the formal training, and just went and studied with the Lacanians and did like the Lacanian cartel study group after that. And uh, yeah, and it was like once I left those systems and like mm -hmm. I just kept getting more and more out of the systems and that systemic way of thinking of all this like hierarchy and like hiding yourself and it's just been like progressively, I've been progressively talking more and being more out there since that time. Mm -hmm. But I have to make sure that you don't turn this interview around on me. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I've noticed that too, when I'm starting to really be okay with the art, with the yeah. creativity, I am so much better with my patients. If mm -hmm. I, I can think more clearly, I can, you know, have my own fantasies going on in my mind. It's just, I've noticed just so much more flexibility and I cannot even help but think about, you know, those who are more grounded in, um, you know, CBT or third wave CBT techniques, how, what's missing there 
it just seems like there's so much void working within that framework. And I just can't even tell you how much art and creativity and music has helped me really get beyond that and, mm -hmm. and just allow my mind to go with these patients. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I stopped doing art for a very long time myself for similar reasons that you both have kind of mentioned. And the first person who brought me back into the artistic world was actually my personal therapist. And she's an art therapist. Um, she, she dabbles in a lot of different things, but she's part art therapist. And she had me start drawing and painting during our sessions. And that was such a game changer for me. It, it brought out something from within myself that I wasn't able to tap into without engaging in those projects. So yeah, I just think that's such a that's such an integral part of being a human being. And for some reason, we tend to push our creativity away a lot of the times. No, and actually you saying that just made me realize what happened was, so I've had three analyses. First, the first one was really good, thankfully. It was while I was in graduate school. And it was because when I went to school, I still had the psychoanalytic mind frame on, not understanding what had happened uh, to psychology. So I thought like everyone becoming a psychologist or an analyst would have to undergo therapy or analysis, right? I thought that was required. It's not. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but I think it should be. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so I decided to, they had like a list at the front office of like, uh, people that would see students at a discount. And so mm. I went to this analyst who was actually himself in training and saw him for like $10 a session, four days a week. Um, thank you, Andrew Lagomasino, uh, <laughs> for that analysis because I saw him for a long time. And I think I might have been one of his like training cases. Um, but I saw him and thankfully that was good because then the analysis I had the Institute was like, really combative and horrendous. And I just, yeah, it was really not, at all. I actually started really understanding Lacan uh, after that analysis because he was analyzed by like one of these staunch ego psychologists and I could see how like getting that kind of analysis would make you like run away screaming and like start your own thing which is kind of what ended up happening um, and then <laughs> then after that I was like well I, I want to see a Lacanian I'm going to study with the Lacanians um, but she was I found this is a problem. This is why I don't cut sessions, even though I love Lacan. But I figured out, as the great hysteric that I am, I figured out how to get her to stop my session when I didn't want to talk about something. Mm. And of course, I was like unconsciously doing it, but I could also see myself doing it. And I kept feeling like, shouldn't you be catching me doing this? Like, shouldn't you right. tell, know that I'm saying things in a certain way so that you go, oh, stop. But when, when she first started stopping the session, like the first, the beginning of the analysis, it was really powerful. And it really felt like she was like hitting me in the face. Like I would wake up with like, aha, aha moments. It was amazing. But then I started like kind of learning how to game the system. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of other hysterics doing that too. I think it's really good for obsessionals, like people that are kind of stuck in ruts to just like yeah. get them to get out of that rut. But like for people that are more hysteric like me, mm, I'm not so sure, but anyway. But she also, I was dating someone who was an artist and was like trans and really kind of experimental. And like, um, she just had decided that this person was psychotic. And like, no matter what I talked mm -hmm. about in my session, she was like, well, that's because they're psychotic. And like, I was like, you're just as bad as the eco psychologist. Like, why are you just deciding that this person that I'm dating, you know, has this diagnosis and like, and even if they did, whatever, 
Does that mean that they don't have anything interesting to say? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that I'm not in a relationship with them? You know, it was mm-hmm. just like, it didn't matter what I said. It was just like, you had already figured out that person. So I find that really problematic as well. Um, but when I was dating that person, I was living with my friend, Melissa Diaz, who's also been on Rendering Unconscious, and she's an art therapist. And when mm-hmm. I was really stressed out one day, she was like, you have to sit down and draw. And she like put paints and like crayons in my hand and made me start like doing art. And that's actually how I started doing art again. Wow. So. These art therapists, man. <laughs> Love them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also had an experience with an art therapist that was completely like life shattering. I, I was also in a rut. I was very mm-hmm. much just just really just stuck and I remember my art was about this big. I, the, the people on the podcast probably can't see this, but probably like a four by four inch. That's my art started like that and very like obsessional, um, you know, markings. And and finally, after a year, my goodness, my art just just changed. I started working with my hands. I started using color. And it's just what art can do is just unbelievable. And, and why aren't we tapping into that? I think... Mm-hmm there's certainly a place for it. And I, I, I wish we can create something where, where people can have access to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the fact that it's like always the first thing that's cut, like Melissa, for example, a lot right. of people I know used to work in like inpatient, inpatient uh, units and do art with patients and then outpatients and do art therapy in private practice. But like a lot of the funding for all of that is cut and of course, even in schools, like the first yep. thing they cut are the art art programs. I think it's really disempowering to people. It absolutely is. Yeah, my school, when I was in high school, we had a really big theater program. And for some reason, you know, the woman who was the the theater teacher and director, she did not let go of, of that program. And I'm grateful to her for it because it is the first thing to go. Like theater and art, all those things are the first thing to go. And for me, even doing theater and putting on different personas and personalities, um, you know, having characters to play and experience the world in a different way through that character's eyes, like that can also be really powerful. And I wonder, you know, you all talking about this stuff made me made me curious about what it would be like to bring acting and, and the theater world into the therapy room. What can we do with people when we role play? And I know some people do that already, but it feels very, when I've tried it, and maybe again, maybe I'm just doing it wrong. But when I've tried it with clients or patients, um, it feels a little forced, um, kind of awkward. So I, I'm imagining almost like, you know, restructuring the therapy room to be this kind of stage almost where people can play around with different, um, different realities, different perspectives. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. And speaking about psychodrama, I've also just had really life-changing experiences with with psychodrama personally as a patient and I'm just thinking about ways that you know psychoanalysis can really utilize some of those I I imagine it's, it would be a little bit difficult but especially if we're outside of the consulting room if we're outside into the community what can we do as mm-hmm. as providers where we can integrate some of the the arts and some of the like even something as little as you know doing a small psychodrama like that's so life-changing it, it can be for a lot of people it certainly was for me and I just think that we, we personally, I think we need to start pushing a little bit more and think a little bit differently about how we reach those patients mm-hmm. um, in the communities and, and elsewhere, e- even in their own homes, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's time to start thinking, keep thinking out of the box. Absolutely. And even this recent, uh, this recent thing that's happened with the coronavirus and having to do all this treatment remotely, <laughs> you know, I think in the end that's going to really open things up because there were places that were already training analysts remotely, but they weren't really talking about it openly because they didn't know what people think about it. But now, you know, now that everyone sees that it is possible to do treatment remotely, mm-hmm. you know, if that's the way you want to work, great. If you don't and you want to go back to an office, great. But I think it's great that there's more options and that people can work with in different ways and also with different people that might not have access to psychoanalysts or therapists in their area if they live in a smaller town or rurally or they're homebound or whatever. Absolutely. I was just going to touch on that as well. Um, and just, yeah, the pandemic has changed so much and it's forced all of us to essentially become teletherapists and figure out how to do this thing. And I was kind of following the teletherapy world a little bit before the pandemic. I had a feeling that, you know, this was going to be a little bit more central to how we do therapy in the future. And I actually mentioned that on one of my internship interviews. And the person I was interviewing with was shocked. They were like, how did you even think to, you know, look into teletherapy? Like, did you see this pandemic coming and kind of made a joke out of it? But no, I think we need to start thinking outside of the box um, in a lot of different ways when it comes to therapy, because I've had clients that I've seen virtually that I probably would never see in person because they can't make it into the office. They can't make it for whatever reason, like you were saying, are they homebound or are they maybe they're in a rural area? So I just think, yeah, I totally agree. We need to completely turn therapy on its head a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's it, it might be worth noting too, so Laura and I live in the Midwest and the access to psychoanalytic psychologists or even psychoanalysts in general is very limited. So oh, yeah. I do think that for me personally, I, um, I'm, I'm not in a formal psychoanalysis now, but I do meet with, with a psychoanalyst. And so I am thinking about ways that I could maybe be a patient of someone who isn't in the area. I think <laughs> the options are quite limited in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. at least in the U.S. Um, And I imagine that other people are thinking similarly, like they want access to this care that they can't get if they they have to be in person. Right. Yeah, no, remote analysis, it is a thing. Mm -hmm. It is happening. And remote training. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting time. It is. I like this idea of turning it on its head. And I think, uh, like I said, Lara and, and what Lynn and Marianne are doing, Um, with the anti-oppressive psychoanalysis and decolonial psychoanalysis. I think it's all, that's all the way to go. Lada has actually kept my, like, like when I moved here, I was hoping, I actually had had a different idea of what the Swedish system was like because I, the only Swedish person I knew was my husband. (laughs) And, uh, he actually was in psychoanalysis five days a week for four and a half years, and it was wow. through their their system. But it was because the person was a medical doctor who was trained to be a psychoanalyst, um, and so he was able to see them for like he said it was probably like a hundred dollars a month or something for five days a week, which is like amazing. Um, but so when I moved here, I was like, oh, the Swedes love psychoanalysis. Yeah. <laughs> No, <laughs> it's not the case, and uh, and there's like 
there are some Lacanians here, but they're like on the other coast. <laughs> um, and the people that are in like the Stockholm area where I live are more like philosophers that are interested in Lacan, but they're not like practicing therapists or analysts. So it's more like just talking about the theory, um, which is a lot of how psychoanalysis has stayed alive. So I'm grateful to that. Um, but yeah, I think making psychoanalysis more like for the people accessible when you're doing remote therapy like me now, I don't have an office, a physical office here. Um, so I'm working out of a room in my house. So then I don't have the overhead of having to pay for like a Manhattan office like I did in New York. So I can offer a better sliding scale. I could see more people that way, things like that, you know, or I could I, I work with people like, you know, I tell them I believe that coming more often, like coming twice a week instead of once a week is really useful for people so like if you want to do that if you're willing to put in the work of coming multiple times a week i'm willing to slide my rate down and down and down so that you can afford more sessions per week things like that mm -hmm. i love that yeah i'm just thinking about the cost too you bring up such a such an interesting and, and important point of if we can utilize what we already have whether it's a room in your house whether it's you know some more affordable office we can also just reach more patients. And um, I think that that in itself is something we really need to start rethinking. Um, most of the internship sites I was applying to were on the East Coast and I was I was starting to look at some of the apartments out there. I'm like, this is so expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know how people can have their practice uh, afford these these offices. And because they, they can, because they charge their clients a yeah. really high, high fee. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Where did y'all end up having your uh, match to? Yeah, I um, I matched with Agnesian Healthcare in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a very small town, um, but they have a great you know hospital system there. So I will be in the hospital system, and like you, Vanessa, I also love I love that kind of setting. So um, that's where I'm gonna be. And I was matched with University of Wisconsin Madison's University Counseling Center. So I will be similar to you. They have uh, 10, 10 session limits, um, so more shorter term work. But I think for me, that is probably the biggest area of growth that, that I see for myself is really being able to to utilize the time more efficiently. And I, I, I don't like that word efficient, but really make use of the time with with the time that, that you have. So. Yeah, because that is a lot of lot you often the only time that people get, you know. I definitely learned a lot working at the Student Counseling Center, and one of my favorite mentors, supervisors, was at the Student Counseling Center, and they did, you know, like, what's called short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy, so mm -hmm. I learned that there. Um, yeah, and I will tell you, they always say that the, the student counseling jobs are, like, the cushy jobs, but actually, um, you know, people don't think about it, but often the people's first psychotic episodes happens at that age when they're leaving home yeah. you know, between 18 and 22. So I actually saw a lot, a lot of people having psychotic breaks at the counseling center, mm -hmm. just so okay. you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. I was at a practicum site at Marquette University and they very, I, I wasn't necessarily allowed to work with those patients because I was a practicum student and I wasn't trained, trained for that. Uh, but they, they also had a lot of high risk patients coming in. So I'm, I'm yeah. actually quite excited about getting that experience in a university setting. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more excited about it. So. Yeah. Carly, do you want to share about your interview experience there? Because I find it really fascinating. It kind of ties into what we talked about, about the personal versus professional identities. 
that's a really good pivot, Laura. Um, so I, this was my first interview and I, I wasn't really appreciating many of the questions that they were asking. And I, I was getting a little bit upset in the interview and I, I got a little angry and I was really sharing, I'm like, I don't appreciate these questions and this is why. And I, I shared with them. And finally, I kind of went all out. I was talking about capitalism and, and I, I kind of went a little bit off script. And <laughs> when I was matched with them, I'm like, wow, what on earth did they see in me? What, what about that did they like? And I, I got thinking, Laura's like, maybe they liked that. Maybe they liked that, that, that you brought yourself to the interview. And I was kind of over it about halfway through the interview. I was just getting really upset with them. And, and so I kind of just went off script and really started showing parts of myself that I, that, I don't know, I just kind of put myself out there and I ended up getting matched with them. So I, I, I hesitate to share that, but I also, I think it's important to share knowing that people, people value that and people mm -hmm. really see that authenticity in, in maybe a different way than I, than I saw it in the interview. Exactly. It pays it pays to be real in those ways and they can see that you could also speak your mind. I'm sure that was really refreshing, you know? Yeah, and after the interview I was just I was so mad and I I, I called Laura and I'm like, you know, these were the questions that they were asking. Interestingly enough, they ended up changing some of their questions that they asked the the other applicants. And so I'm like, wow, you know, I actually was able to make a difference with some of my rage. Yes. And mm -hmm. um Oh, yeah. yeah, I interviewed there as well. And I had my interview, I think a week after Carly had hers and they their questioning was completely different. So I wondered, I was like, how much of this was Carly, you know, so it's pretty cool. That's great. That makes me so happy that you're speaking up. It is scary, though. And it kind of goes back to the podcast. I in this episode or in in this interview, I did talk about our podcast, which I didn't do in all of my interviews. And I it was scary to me, but at that point, I'm like, I don't even care at this point because they aren't going to want me. So I'm like, you know, this is a podcast. This is what we're doing. This is what we're interested in. And they must have loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The interview that I did where I matched at Agnesian, I actually brought up the podcast as well in that interview. I think I was in the same space where I was like, I don't care anymore. I've had so many interviews at this point. And I actually asked the training director there if she wanted to be on the podcast and she accepted. So we're going to hopefully have her on our podcast at some point nice no but I think that's exactly the way to be just like you can't care about these kind of putting on airs anymore right it's just like there's no place for that in in the world if we want to build it differently than this you know absolutely and especially with this age group that you're working with like college age you have to kind of be real with with people mm -hmm. of that age it's, just, it's like late adolescence you know and if you're too unapproachable you know, the yes. team is not going to work and they'll call you out on it, most likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you pick your guests for your podcast? Great question. Carly? I, I reach out to people that I find interesting, that, uh, you know, write interesting things. And also, you know, I, we recently had Dr. Um, Elizabeth Paquette on. We haven't released the episode yet, but she is a philosopher who does a lot of um, like feminist decolonial uh, philosophy. And that's something that I am interested in, but I don't really know much about. And so I reached out to her and really we 
we want to learn through the podcast and we imagine that other people want to learn Mm-hmm. through it as well and and we hope that it is more of a learning experience for people it certainly is for us mm-hmm. and really really being confronted with things that are different and being confronted with ideas that are that are different that we can maybe start incorporating in with our own practice and our own lives yeah I was a little timid when we first started the podcast. I initially just reached out to a friend that I knew, somebody who I was close with, because that's what I felt comfortable doing. And then I saw Carly just, you know, just going (laughs) after all these people who, to me, they were like big names and they were important people in the world. And I got really nervous, but just seeing Carly reach out to people that I would have never thought to reach out to, um, that inspired me. And I think one of the quote-unquote biggest people I reached out to when we started the podcast was Dr. Valerie Hasanov, who wrote a book, um, The Fear of Doing Nothing, and we loved that book. We, we read it together, Carly and I, and we discussed it, and I just thought, you know what, what the heck, I'm going to Facebook stalk him. I found him on Facebook, and I sent him a message, and I did not think at all that he was going to respond, and when he did, that was almost just like an adrenaline rush that I, I wanted to continue seeking out, and at this point, I think we just reach out to people that we think are doing really cool work, and I've reached out to people who have not responded back to me, which is fine, but at least I shot my shot and it's out there you know so I think at this point we don't really hold back anymore we're not as as timid as we as as I once was when we first started it was really funny at the very beginning we were like okay if we have maybe four people who listen to the podcast that was like our minimum so uh we're like okay if we if we get less than four we might want to hang it up or we might want to try to pivot but so we had really low expectations and I think it took a little while for the podcast to really, um, you know, have more listeners. But I, I feel like now it's it's used more as a resource. I know our social media really reaches out to people with, you know, events, free events, um, different types of ideas. So we, we I think the way that we're going right now, I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, we don't really make any money doing the podcast. We don't want to. Um, we don't really have a face to the podcast. And it's, it's interesting. I think this is the first time that we actually mm-hmm. are going to have our faces attached to the podcast itself. Um, but it's really important for us to not have a face to when we say join us, like we mean it, we mean join us, like join in. Um, and that's, that's something that's really important to us. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't take that long to get going because it just started in August and it's everywhere. August, yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty, that's pretty quick. <laughs> yeah it happened somehow yeah no that's great um i was gonna ask you something else but it just slipped my mind oh well was there anything else that you wanted to be sure to mention i guess i just think podcasting is super important and i really enjoy it i know carly really does and um carly i know you mentioned a little bit about the podcast community i don't know if you had any thoughts or any last you know things you wanted to share about that because i you know i personally like when i listen to your podcast vanessa and um when we have people reach out to us to come on our podcast like it feels like a little mini community to me um and i just yeah i just find that world so I'm grateful to that world. Um, I feel like I kind of belong in the podcast world a little bit. 
Yeah, let's talk about that because you mentioned talking about the podcast community and it's it's a small po- psychoanalytic podcast community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I, I was really interested in psychoanalysis and I didn't quite know what resources were available to me. And I, I went straight to podcasts and I started just searching for, you know, terms that I think were interesting. And so I start. that's how I started my, really my psychoanalytic journey was through podcasts. And for me, the, one of the most important things about our podcast and, and others too, is it makes the ideas accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, some people don't have time to read. Some people do, yep. some people have families and they work. And when you can listen to a podcast, it makes it so much more accessible. Yes. And it, the theories that are brought up within the podcast, oftentimes you, you, you can understand it without fully understanding the theory. The way that people talk about theory is mm-hmm. much more accessible. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're reading a book, you're like, I don't know what these terms are. I have, to, I have to, you know, ask Siri, you know, hey, Siri, what's this word? I have to do that all the time when I read. But when I'm listening to podcasts, it's so much more accessible and easier to understand. And it's, to me, that's just really important. Yeah, that was definitely one of my goals was to make psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic thinking more accessible because I felt like it was like in these little ivory towers and locked away yeah. and like especially with Lacan, everybody's like thinks it's completely incomprehensible and you know, and but every time like when I was in New York I did a lot of um events like at museums talking about art and psychoanalysis or magic and psychoanalysis and th- things that people like that mm-hmm. weren't psychoanalysis that then would get them to come to the event and they would hear about psychoanalysis. Um, and everybody gets it when you're talking about it because everyone has a mind and lives a life and you know if they're coming to more creative events they're already kind of open to more creative ways of thinking and I found that it really resonates with people when they're exposed to it but it's just not out there that much. I'm trying to think what else and also too i i'm just and, and laura talked about this a, a little bit of ago but the idea that people are willing to come on the podcast is so meaningful i mean we're we're two graduate students we you know we are at a particularly you know fantastic university we i think we're both just pretty normal mm-hmm. normal people <laughs> and i think the the idea that people can come on the podcast and feel welcomed on the podcast but also just having a conversation with someone despite like we're we're kind of just normal students like we aren't yeah I don't think there's too much much more to us than that and and the idea that people want to come on and talk to us is just it's so meaningful and it yeah yeah Yeah, I think being like doing a podcast and seeing how willing people are to speak makes me just recognize and it reinforces the idea that like we're all having this human experience and we're all human beings part of you know i'm going to risk sounding really hippy dippy and cliche but we all part we're, we're part of a human family you know and as yes we have all these differences and and we have different beliefs but at the end of the day like we're all just human beings figuring out trying to figure out how to connect to one another and so it's really cool when people are willing to do that and they're willing to open up and share their ideas share their thoughts so that's mm-hmm. that's been really um life-changing for me since we started the podcast mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think it's great. I think analysts really enjoy having the opportunity to speak because like we were talking about before, so many people are on the other side where they're always listening and they're not really yeah. sharing so much unless they're like a professor or something like that. But a lot of clinicians don't really do that. And sometimes in the podcast interviews, like you can tell in the beginning, they're not used to just like talking about themselves. And it's really fun to get people to open up and share what their experience has been like. And I always like asking them like how, what the road to psychoanalysis or psychology mm -hmm. was like for them, because everyone's had such a different experience and there's so many different roads into it. Yeah. This might be a little bit off off topic, but it just it made me remember something I was thinking about before. I, in terms of my journey into psychology, I I was never really exposed to psychology in undergrad, and I I, I took a few classes, but I certainly was not at all indoctrinated to to psychology mm -hmm. that way. I was more in the philosophy and religious studies departments, and then I ended up doing biology. But I think for me that was that was a game changer, not being exposed to it early on to kind of those behavioral ideas and kind of the, the whitewashed psychology. I think that was a game changer for me. And I think that's why I'm so interested in the work that I do now and psychoanalysis in general. I just, I wasn't exposed to it early on like so many other psychologists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went into undergrad and yeah, I went straight into Pavlov and behavioralism. And it's interesting because when I started getting interested in psychology, I was in an English class, an AP English class in high school. And that was completely different. And that's kind of what I expected. I was expecting to, you know, read literature and read books and from a psychoanalytic perspective, because that's what I did in AP English. And I was like, this is so cool. And then when I went off to college and I took Psych 101, it was not that at all. Um, so I feel you on that, Carly, on the indoctrination piece. I think I was a little more indoctrinated because at one point I completely disowned Carl Jung, who I really loved growing up, and and Freud as well, because I just I I bet into this belief that it was all hogwash and they had nothing else to teach us. So I'm glad I, I got out of that dark period in my life. Yeah, and that's something the the guest I had before you, Kai Armand, talks about. Um, we were talking about this and he specifically likes Jung as well, but also this idea of like the myth of progress and how like, oh, the new science is the science that's correct because it's the new science mm -hmm. and has completely like disregarded all of what people thought before, whether it's different kinds of psychoanalysis or different belief systems about the world or different cultures, like, you know, this very narrow minded kind of white Western culture thinks it's like the end all be all of everything and it's not and that's what's getting dismantled now it's like every, you know I, I always use America as an example that's where I'm from so I feel like I can but like you know America is only like four and a half percent of people in the world and mm -hmm. like most of those people are not like white cis heterosexual men <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it's like it's like this very small percentage of the world that thinks it's the right way and yeah. now it's like finally everyone else in the world is like just sick of it and like we have this internet and we are all connected and we can all collectively say like we are sick of your shit <laughs> yep together <laughs> absolutely is there anything else that you want to be sure to mention did you say this guest has an event coming up this decolonial feminist it, yeah it's um so she had to cancel the the last one due to covid uh, but if you go on her website, um, you can certainly find it on our Instagram page. And, and I, 
Vanessa, if you want, I, I can I can share it with you as well. Um, but at each year they have a five or six day event. It's free. You just have to uh, either get to the location if it's done at a particular location. But this coming up here, it's actually going to be virtual. So if anyone is interested in decolonial theory, integrating feminism in with that, this sounds like a fantastic workshop. It's about a five day workshop. It's a full day workshop. You read you read texts that are agreed upon by the group, and it sounds amazing so how cool no definitely yeah. check that out and then mm -hmm. of course next weekend and the weekend after the apa is the apa conference are you all um mm -hmm. a part of that in any way or going to attend yeah we're, we're i think we're both going to be volunteering i think we'll, both yep. weekends so mm -hmm. we'll we'll certainly be there people can reach out to us if they see us if they see us yep. there very cool. Yeah, I'm presenting my my violence book on violence and psychoanalysis with the co-editor Manya Steinkohler. Mm -hmm. So I will be there. That last last year when COVID was happening full force uh, and the conference got canceled, they were so prescient to cancel it. Like when it was just starting to become clear, like they were, like Laura was the first person that I saw like really took it seriously. And was like, even though they've been planning this event for years mm -hmm. and it was a huge event. They were like, we just need to cancel it. Wow. And I was supposed to fly. They, I think they canceled on March 8th, and which was a Sunday. And I was supposed to fly to New York that Friday on the 13th, mm -hmm. Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, after they canceled, I'm like, oh, this is really serious. And then, like, two days later, the, the only other event we were supposed to have when we were in New York, well, my husband had a film festival that they were showing all his films all weekend, which oh he missed. Oh, <laughs> Um, but that's okay. And then uh, we were supposed to do a book event with our friend who was uh, like a little older, like almost 70. Um, and we were like, well, we shouldn't expose Jen to mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if, if they could get sick, you know. So we were like, we, if we're good friends, we should just cancel the trip. Um, so we decided to cancel it, like, I think on the 10th or something. And then, of course, Friday the 13th, everything was shut down anyway. And yep. was anywhere. So yep. I'm really glad that they are making it happen. Um, and actually this way now we can see like all of the panels instead of having to choose what to go to yep, we can just exactly. watch everything online so that's kind of awesome it's mm -hmm. so much more accessible it's very cool very cool all right well we can wrap up there then thanks so much for coming that was really fun thanks so much for having us seriously this was awesome Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Carly Gerholt and Lara Prado, the hosts of Unconventional Dyad Podcast. For more, listen to their podcast and check out their website, Unconventional Dyad, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health and the arts, and follow them on social media. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T 
R-E-O-N.com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. The enigma is not the beginning. It is already secondary. It emerges against this background of a forced choice of meaning. It is only against this background that the whole story of enigmatic message of the other can take off, of searching for meaning, of desire for understanding, a presupposition that the symbolic reality of the field of the other is coherent, that the other knows. When he was done, I rolled over, pulled up my pants and zippered them, and then sat up and started to straighten my hair, to scramble away, intending to achieve a safe distance sit up and have a cool, reasonable conversation with him. He was probably drunk, and if I could get clear, I could handle him easily enough. If I could just get clear. If I could just get clear. If I could just get your fear. Symbols of transformation. The blood, however, seems to suggest the cycle wasn't complete. Other inner figures appeared in his fantasies, like Ka, a kind of earth spirit, But the most important was Philemon, who became an inner guru. In paintings he did at the time, which he collected in what he called the Red Book. The symbolic aid distinct in being specified, as it were, as a whole. What is striking, however, is that the true whole is here, at the site where it is revealed that there is no other of the other. This presupposes or implies that one chooses to speak the tongue that one effectively speaks. In actual fact, one does no more than imagine to oneself that one is choosing it. Moreover, 
What resolves the issue is that at the end of the day, one creates this tongue. What is taken from the past and how it is projected? What is promoted and what isn't? The obvious explanation is that the change in behavior of the loved one is intolerable and its inconsistency means that the subject chooses to believe in two different people rather than one person who can both gratify and frustrate. Perhaps through their successive presences and absences. Dijon replaced the human body with machine imagery and thematized representation of the female subject, object. Her use of technology and mechanomorphic forms makes connections between the human body and machinery and explores sexuality and threats against the body. She predated structuralism which theorizes how different science systems codify and shape understanding of the world. In her contributions of word and image and her interest in sound and music, the body and figuration were abandoned altogether in favor of an even more gender-anonymous approach have explored geometric patterns and attempted to break aesthetic expression down into the simplest forms. Data women drove an even greater loosening of content in suitably diverse ways. Whether the fragmentation of the body, the challenge to conventional forms of representation, or the removal of the unstable figure altogether. These radical gestures constituted attempts to find new means of representation and expression. We live in a world of systems, of structure. We are raised to believe that this is inevitable, the natural order of things. Science proves it's so. But what happens when we start to question this order, dare to challenge it? And what would happen if we break it down, disassemble it, cut it up, if we break it down, disassemble it, cut it up?